This morning's scripture, Romans the 11th chapter, verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your word to be able to look at and to better understand you, how you work, Father, in our hearts and minds and in the hearts and minds of even unbelievers, Lord. And Father, I pray that your spirit would help us to understand these verses this morning and I pray that the words I speak be not of me but be of you according to your will and bring you glory for it is in Christ's precious name we pray amen so again this morning we are examining Romans 11 which deals in large part with Israel as a nation or the Jews ethnic Jews when I use that term specifically the question is whether God has future plans for them and we've been dealing with this question for several weeks if not months and we'll continue to deal with it over the next few weeks has God abandoned them and that is the ultimate question have they been replaced by the church and you've heard me make mention of this before and you've heard me say that there's a lot of evidence to support this idea that the ethnic Jews were replaced by the church and that being a Jew was spiritual and not so much physical or according to the DNA. But I've never really given you much scripture to support that. You've just heard me say it without showing you much. So I'm going to show you a little bit from where this comes. And you've heard me also say that, but for this chapter 11, I would be fully on board. Say, yeah, the ethnic Israel or the ethnic Jews, according to their DNA, has been totally replaced by the church and that being a Jew was always spiritually and never was according to any bloodline or lineage, so to speak. But we have this chapter 11 that I just can't sweep under the rug that causes me very, or causes me a great deal of trouble in maintaining that. So, with that, we will look at biblical reasons why you have so many of those that believe. The church has replaced the ethnic Israel as God's people. And these are the words of Christ found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 44. It's a parable of Christ. Hear another parable, he says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the, seasons, when the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. It's not progressing. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, 
And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death. Scribes and Pharisees saying this. And let out the vineyard to the other to and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and give to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the cornerstone or on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And I tell you, many will come from the east and west. Let's go back. That's a different scripture. So you see this parable that's been given here. Jesus is telling them. And in this parable, he's saying, you were given a vineyard to take care of. And God sent, or the owner of the vineyard sent servants. And what did you do with the servants that came to collect the fruit of the vineyard? You stoned them. You killed them. And all these servants that God sent were his prophets, or the owner of the of the vineyard sent were his prophets. And you've heard many times in the New Testament that you're a wicked and perverse generation. You stoned the prophets. You killed those that God sent. And so God sent more, or the owner of the vineyard sent more. They did the same to them. They killed him. And so ultimately he sent his son, saying surely they will listen to his son. Surely they will do what they're supposed to do because we're sending the son. They didn't. They killed the son of the owner of the vineyard. It's a beautiful parable. And so what happened? What did the owner of the vineyard do? He took the vineyard away from the tenants that he had given it to originally. The Jews. That's what Jesus is saying. That's that's what God is doing. He is taking his kingdom from the Jews, the tenants of the vineyard, and giving it to a people that will show fruit, that will serve God, and not do what they did to him. So we see a clear example from Christ in this parable that God took the kingdom away from those people, gave it to a new people. Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. Again, the words of Christ. And I will tell you, many will come from east and west and will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These people coming from the east and the west are not the Jews. They're not Jewish. These are Gentiles. People coming from the east and the west. Gentiles will come, and what will they do? They will recline. They will dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Foreigners are coming to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. While what? While the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, 
the ethnic Israelites, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in a place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see what's going on here. You see that there is a transition from peoples to another people, which is a people of faith, i.e. the church. Finally, and there are many more, but I'm just stopping with this one for brevity's sake. Acts 13, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, and he's speaking to the Jews, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That last part of verse 48, 48b, if you will, is amazing in God's sovereignty. So he's saying, we gave the Jews the gospel, you rejected it. So now we're turning to the Gentiles. And as many as were appointed, believed. Not in reverse order. God does the appointing, thus they then believed. But we see exactly what happened here. So the Jews were given the kingdom first. And they rejected the kingdom. And it was given to the Gentiles. Now, Please don't think that this was God reacting to what the Jews did. Don't think that that's the way God deals with things. It wasn't as if God gave the kingdom to them, unknowing what was going to happen. They rejected it, and so then God had to circle the wagons and react to the Jews and give it to somebody else. He does not work that way. He's not constantly up there just trying to react to the things that we do or don't do. That's not who God is or how he works. The rejection by the Jews brought salvation to the Gentiles. Brought salvation to us. So that brings us to another issue. There was sin involved in this, right? There was sin involved in our salvation. Whose sin? The Israelites' sin. Their sin resulted in our ability to be saved. So how does all of that work? Say, I'm not going to give credit, or I'm not going to credit the sin to God or give him that attribute. As well, you should not. But you shouldn't think that God is not working in and through that sin to accomplish something beautiful. That's what we tend to forget. When we see things happen, no matter how atrocious it may be, we tend to forget. God's in the middle of that. He still is. But we don't don't make that connection, do we? Go all the way back to Genesis 37. I'll tell you a story about a brother named Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph, right? 
Joseph had 11 other brothers. They didn't really care for him. What did they do to him? They threw him in a pit to die. They thought, nah, that's not good enough. We're going to sell him. We'll sell him into slavery to the Egyptians. So that's what they did. They sold their brother into slavery for the Egyptians, to the Egyptians. 17 years, he wallows around in an Egyptian jail dungeon in misery, in dank coldness, living a horrific life, sinful because of what the brothers did to him. And we all know the story, right? Joseph comes out of that dungeon. He has the ability to to tell the king what he's dreaming and what these dreams mean. And he's a prophet from God. And he gets elevated. And he gets elevated to number two, right under the king of Egypt. And so as part of this elevation, he starts making plans because God's told him there's a great famine coming on these nations. And so he makes plans for that famine and he stores up a lot of grain and stores up a lot of food. And so when that famine strikes, Joseph's brothers are starving to death as well as his dad. And his dad, Jacob, sends the brothers to go get food. And so whom do they see when they go to get food? They see their brother. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. They just know that he's got food. And so the exchange goes on for a while, but the one big thing comes about whenever Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. What did Joseph tell his brothers? He tells them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The meant from the brothers, if you'll allow me, and the meant from God is the same word. Joseph did not say, you meant it for evil, and then God reacted and changed the outcome for good. No. The outcome was always good because even though the brothers meant evil, God meant good, and it was God working in and through that evil that did something wonderful and miraculous that saved a whole lot of lives. So even though we see evil, don't think that God's not in it. He may not have caused it, but he's right in the middle of it. Cross, right? There's evil all in that cross. There's sin all in that cross. It was full of sin. Judas' betrayal was nothing but sin. The trials that they held, that Herod held, and, 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 and they all, Pilate held, it was all sin. The mockery that they gave Jesus or put upon him, it was full of sin. The spit in his face, the casting of lots for his garments, the beatings that he took, it was all from sinful men. God was all up in that though. Because through and in and because of that evil sin, something beautiful happened. Salvation came to all of men and women that believed on his name. So even though all of those men meant it for evil, God meant it for good. 
He was busy in it working everything for his own glory and for our good. So here we have in this Romans passage this morning, we have sin in the middle of it. We have evil rooted in the middle of it. But who else is right in the middle of it? God is right in the middle of it. Working it, forming it, causing it all to happen according to his beautiful, good, and perfect will. He is working Israel's rejection and Israel's sinfulness and their stubbornness to bring salvation to the entire world. To bring salvation to us here this morning. Without Israel's sin, we don't hear the gospel. Without Israel's sin, there is no church this morning. That's the way that God works it. That's the way that God plans it. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Who's he speaking about when he speaks of they? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So if we look at the they, we can jump back up to verse 7. And we can see who he's talking about. What then? Israel obtained, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the rest is, or are, the ethnic Jews. So he's talking about those that have Jewish DNA pulsing through their veins. That's who he's addressing this to. The rest are the ethnic Jews. So when he says, so did they, he's speaking about those that weren't saved, those that were not the elect, the other people, the other Jews that rejected Christ. So have they stumbled? Is their rejection final is the question. Because that's what everything looks like. Jesus said, I'm going to take salvation that I gave to a group of people and I'm going to give it to somebody else. So are those people done? Is there no future for those people? And that's the question that Paul's addressing here. And he answers it right there in verse 11. By no means. By no means. May it never be. It was through their sinfulness, it was through their trespass that salvation came to the Gentiles. Salvation came to the Gentiles. We see something curious at the end of this, don't we? Why? So as to make Israel, make them jealous. It is to make them jealous. The idea is that when they become jealous, then they will return. Honestly, God uses jealousy a lot in evangelism. If you just stop and and think about it. God loses, uses jealousy a lot in calling others to Christ. When we demonstrate a true Christian li- life to unbelievers, the idea is it will make them jealous. They want what we have. They want the peace that Christ brings in all walks of life. When tragedy strikes, and rest assured it will, whenever chaos is all over, and you have that peace of Christ, 
The understanding of knowing that this world is not our home, that we're merely passing through, that there is nothing, no matter how bad it may be in this life, that there is nothing that's going to take away our eternity. When we fully understand that, when we fully realize that, and we're not wringing our hands in fear or anxiety or chaos, people want that and they ask, why? How are you able to deal with this situation like I can't? Like, I don't understand. Why aren't you crazed with fear and trouble and going through all these emotions? What's different about you? People don't like going through that chaos. They don't like the fear, the turmoil, the dread, everything that's involved with tragedy in this life. People don't like it. And so when they see Christians living a Christ life of peace... That no matter what happens to us, it's going to be okay because we're assured of Romans 8.28. When we live that way, it sparks a jealousy in those outside of us. And whenever people say, what's different about you? Because I want some of that. That leads them to Christ. And so God uses jealousy as a way to bring non-believers to himself. And we've seen it many times. But we see it here specifically. He's talking about the Jews. He's going to use jealousy to bring Jews back to himself. Somehow and at some point, they're going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And they're going to be jealous of the Christians and what we possess as Christians. And it's going to cause them to come back in mass. Not a few, but in mass. They're going to see that they overlooked that Messiah from the Old Testament. Paul asks another question here in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their sin meant something good, is what he's saying. If the sinfulness of the Jews meant something good, And the fact that they failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah brought riches to all of us, to the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? So that's that's the question. He's saying, if they sinned and their sin meant something wonderful or their sinfulness meant something wonderful to the world and to the Gentiles, think about how great it's going to be when they are fully included. So you see, he's talking about a full inclusion. He's not talking about a remnant. He's saying full inclusion. So at some point, the Jews will be fully included into the faith. Verse 13. Paul says, Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. So again, Paul using that same idea. I minister so as to make them jealous and to save some of them. But this is different. Paul's still talking about a remnant here because it's some of them. Here in verse 12, it is their full inclusion. But here in verse 13, he backtracks a little bit and he says, some of them. So while 
he's working on some of them and he's still working on the remnant by, by using his ministry to make them jealous and to bring them in. There's going to be something greater coming in the future. The sum will be turned into a full inclusion, not this remnant of which he is one that we saw a few weeks ago. There's going to be an absolute full inclusion of the Jews at some point in time. And he goes back, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So again, he contrasts this notion that the sinfulness of the Jews resulted in something wonderful happening to all of us and to the entire world. What will it be? How wonderful will it be? How great will the blessings be whenever they do something godly, whenever they accept the Messiah? If their sinfulness meant something wonderful to us, think about how much more the blessing is going to be whenever they accept the Messiah, whenever they embrace the Messiah the Messiah. And he asked the question, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I believe that what this means is when God is finished with the Gentiles, whenever he is finished calling the Gentiles to himself, there will be a great Jewish awakening take place. And they will believe and accept the Messiah as Jesus. And then Jesus will return And the dead will be raised, caught up with him, and will forever be with him. In my eyes, that's the end of the book. In my eyes, that's that's the end of it all. Whenever God is done with us, whenever he's called all the Gentiles he's going to call, then something wonderful is going to happen, and it's going to make the Jews jealous, and they are going to come to him in mass. And that will be the end of it all. The dead will be raised, and we will be with him, and there will be nothing but everlasting joy for all eternity. Now, what do we take from this? I believe we can take a couple things and apply it to our lives. First, it does not matter how awful and horrible the sin may be. Always know that God's in the middle of it. He's not causing it, but he's working in and through it. You see things on TV, you hear about things, the news tells us things, and we tend to think, God's not in that. Yeah, he is. He is in it. Because I will tell you, nothing worse could happen than what happened on that cross. They took his son, the owner of the vineyard, and they killed him. It can't get any worse. And yet God was in the very middle of it. He's in the middle of the most horrific things we hear, see, or witness at this time on this earth. He is still working to accomplish all things according to his perfect will. It's Romans 8.28, right? It's Romans 8.28. He's not responding. He is working. So when tragedy strikes... And it will. When something happens that your flesh wants to say, my God, how could this happen? Demonstrate the peace that Christ gives us. Because when we demonstrate the peace, 
the love that only Christ can give us, it gives us the ability to take number two away, which is to make others jealous, to draw others to Christ. If we react to the tragedy of this life as the world does, they want nothing from us. They're not jealous of God. If we react like an unbeliever when tragedy strikes at our, us or our family or in our lives, they don't want God. He does nothing for us in that respect. But when they see a peace, love, and joy in the midst of those heartaches and trials and tragedies and loss, that's something that everybody wants. And that's what Christ gives us is the ability to demonstrate that, to show that whenever our faith has worked in our minds to make us convinced that this life isn't worth a whole lot. What's worth way more is eternity. When we know that, when our faith brings us the ability to know that and bank on that, then there is nothing in this life that can subject us to the same type of turmoil, stress, and difficulty that it does the world. Amen? So let's do our part as Christ's ambassadors to show the world the peace that he gives us, to show the world the peace that he has to offer because that's truly the way that we bring others unto him. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, it's truly remarkable that we have your word to be able to understand just a little how you work to be able to see you in the middle of tragedies, to be able to see you in the middle of the acts of sinful man, to be able to know that Romans 8.28 is true and you're working in and through that. Father, help us to always be steadfast when those moments arise. Those moments when our flesh want to cry out, want to scream, want to do anything but glorify you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would redirect us to... Let us think on eternal things to let us remember that this world is only passing, that life here is but a vapor, that we set our minds on the eternal, and that in so doing, we're glorifying you. And then when we have our minds on the eternal, that we're able to deal with life's tragedies, we're able to show ourselves with the love and peace of Christ, and we know that you use that in our lives to draw others unto yourself. Father, give us the courage to do that because it's easy for us to to lose hold of that, to to not act in a Christ-like manner, but to act like the world. Give us the strength to fight it. Give us the strength to overcome it and help us to be Christ-like every moment of our lives. And Father, we glorify you this morning for your spirit and all that he gives us. For in Christ's precious name we pray, amen. All rise.